Who's who's introducing? I always do it. Oh, okay. Hello, and welcome back to the Future is Bright, question mark, the podcast. I'm moving the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I am Lindsay. And I'm Bridget. Why do I always say that? I say the podcast ever, ever No, you don't. I don't? No, you've only said it for the last two, (laughs) and then you keep saying it now. (laughs) (laughs) Did you introduce yourself? Yeah. Oh, okay. And we also have a very special guest here. We have my lovely older, much older sister, <laughs> Nicole. That's, wow, that was so, so rude. <laughs> well, it's fine. Really not that much older. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. <laughs> so introduce yourself. Hello, I'm Nicole. I'm uh, one of the hosts of Buffalo Chicken Slice Podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that, Lindsay. Sorry, I (laughs) forgot. It's not a true crime podcast. No, No. but that's okay. It's just an everything in between podcast. Yeah. We talk about relationships, TV shows. Who's we? Oh, sorry, me and my significant significant other, Aaron. And we talk about chips, pizza, TV shows. Disney Channel. Disney Channel. We do brackets. Not channel. Disney the movie. The Disney one was so good. I was so into it. (laughs) We've gotten a lot of flack because of the one particular movie that didn't make it that far. Which one? Aaron. Oh, I guess we'll have to wait. Check it out. Right. We also have Elliot here who is loving on Bridget. He is my cat. He's not mad about it. <laughs> He's, He's like, like really yeah, really loving on her. <laughs> if you need me to move him, I will. <laughs> this is the only cat that I've ever met that's liked me. Really? This way, so. <laughs> it's really cute. Alright, well, we'll just leave him be and let him love you. Um, but thank you for having me because yeah. I am true crime obsessed. Right, yeah. So. Nicole is like, Nicole started my obsession with true crime. Did like. You? Did you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, wow. she started my crime junkies love and, like, thinking I'm going to get killed wherever I go. Okay, right. I, yeah. I didn't yeah. say that. That's a concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, she started it all. Yes. So, yeah. I'm, I'm glad like, I can share that with someone. Yeah. I mean, Aaron hates it, so. Yeah, literally hates it. She has no one to talk about it with, so it's normally me. Yeah. And my mom. Mom mm-hmm. has become a true crime person, too. Well, she would always watch, like, Snapped or Oxygen right. yeah. or, like, stuff like oh, that. There's okay? <laughs> a weird cough I had there. <laughs> yes, but now she listens to the Nancy Grace podcast. Oh, she's oh, a What, Elliot? What? A, he it's is, okay. like... Okay, focus. All right, sorry. So, <laughs> anyway, we can get into what we're doing. So we are actually, Bridget and I are taking a back seat today, yeah. and we are letting Nicole re- do her own case. Yes. And she was probably going to put us both to bed. We're probably, oh, for like, sure. No. She's going to do so much better than the both of us. No, but it's, just, that's no. what I've been used to growing up, so I'm ready. No. <laughs> no. So I'm ready for it. Well, I'm going to be covering um, one of the cases that kind of, like, still haunts me to this day for so many different reasons, but it's the disappearance of Susan Powell and the murders of her two children, um, Charlie and Brayden. So I kind of went into a really deep, deep Deep hole. Okay. (laughs) I just, ever since I followed um, Crime Junkie's episode about it, and then there's a podcast which I'll talk about that like really covers this case in depth 
I just couldn't stop like looking about looking into it watching all the coverage about it and finding recent updates on it it's just like one of the worst cases I've ever heard so I don't remember it I remember listening to the crime junkies but I don't remember anything about it I know which and made I, think me I only know yeah. a little bit about it okay, I don't remember so it. Yeah. yeah okay yeah right. so yeah let's hop right in we're ready okay well, this may be a long one, sorry. Yes, this that's sorry. This yeah. may be a little bit of a long one. <laughs> but we're okay, we love long ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So, on the morning of Monday, December 7th, 2009, in West, Vid- West Valley City, Utah, the Powell family was missing. No one had heard or seen from them the day before. It was a frigid, cold morning with snow coating the ground. Josh and Susan were both no-call, no-shows at work. Their two young boys, Charlie and Brayden, did not show up for daycare at 6.40 a.m. as they usually did. Charlie was only seven and Brayden was four, going on five. So before I go like really deep into the morning of December 7th, I thought I'd give you just like two to three really important things about Josh's childhood. I had like... Josh is the dad? Josh is the dad. Okay. Yeah. I had like five paragraphs on it and Aaron told me I should have got back. (laughs) (laughs) She <laughs> deep dove into this yeah. man's past. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Josh was born to Steve and Terry Powell. Her real name is Terrica, but I'm just going to call her Terry because that's a lot that's easier. That's a horrible name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a weird name. <laughs> they, um, they were born under the Church of Latter-day Saints, and I was going to do some information on that, but I also thought XA yeah, on that. no. Um, he We're is good. one of five kids, and the other siblings are John, Jennifer, Michael, and Alina. Some, if not all, of the siblings, as well as as well as the father, Steve, play a very important role in this case later on. So you'll want to know. Um, Josh's father, Steve, uh, was very misogynistic, and he kind of like put this view onto his boys, Josh and Michael, in particular. Um, he would often tell the boys that he should be able to have women at his will however he wanted, whenever he yes. wanted, especially when his wife was eight months pregnant with their youngest daughter, Alina. Oh, that's <laughs> solid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that. Right. Really good. Yeah. Um, and this really creeped me out a lot. He oh had journal entries um, where he said that he found himself sexually attracted to his oldest daughter, Jennifer. Oh, that's, yeah. that's a real... Real winner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the other big thing was that um, Josh's parents divorced, um, and as a result, like, from a lot of the research that I found, I thought that Josh started to develop a lot of, like, negative behaviors as a result of the divorce. So divorce court records did show that he actually threatened his mom with a butcher knife. Oh, God. And then he um, killed his four-year-old sister's <gasps> pet gerbil. Oh, that's, like, typical, like, killer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's one of the triads of right. evil, there which is um, wetting the bed, setting fires, yeah. and then killing animals. Yeah. So, just a little fun right. fact about John. <laughs> Did he set fires, too, or is that he just had one of the? Well, we shall see. Oh! Oh! <laughs> <laughs> All right! <laughs> I should have made light of that, but... What do you mean? Like, I shouldn't joke about him setting fires, because it's really not... terrible, but... You didn't really set a joke, you just said, okay, we'll just see. Fine. Okay. okay. <laughs> anyway, so... <laughs> that's the case. Um, so, Josh met Susan when he was 24, and she was just 19 years old. 
and they started their whirlwind relationship around November of 2002. And I thought it would be important to highlight some of the interesting th things that stood out to me um, while they were developing their relationship. And as I said, there was one podcast that really like dove deep into this case mm -hmm. a lot. And a lot of my research is from that podcast and it's the cold podcast. Highly recommend it if you're interested in this is case Is it just at all. about her case? Yeah, it's literally oh. just covers Susan. They interview um, people that are involved in the case, her family members, the detectives that were on the case, huh. the daycare workers. They play audio recordings from Steve's journal, from Josh's journals. Um, they interview, like, exes of Steve, of, I'm sorry, of Josh's. Like, they do a really good in-depth huh. research on this cool. case. Um, so... Anyway, one of the things that they talk about is um, how Josh talked to Susan about, like, just two months into their relationship, he tricked Susan into buying her own engagement ring. Oh. How do you trick somebody into buying He pretended that it was going to be a gift for his mom because Susan worked at a jewelry store. Oh. And so he said, can you help me pick out a gift for my mom? I want to get her a ring. And so she picked out the ring, thinking it was for Josh's mm -hmm. mom, bought it, and then it was her engagement. That's ring. weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Yeah, he was, like, really, like, a cheapskate. Like, he yeah. just was tight on money. He always was very careful with their spending. And any way he could find a deal, he would. So, by April 2001, they were officially married. So, remember, they started in November 2000. So, April 2001, not really a long dating time. Wow, that's um, less than a year. Yeah, yeah. Did Good that job. math my head? <laughs> that was real quick. <laughs> <laughs> so, they were officially married. And, as I mentioned, they struggled with money because Josh had a tendency to max out their credit cards and would put a lot of stuff in Susan's name, which would hurt her records, like, right. later on. Right. So they couldn't afford their own place, so they needed to move in with Stephen Powell, which is Josh's oh, dad. Oh, that's terrible. In South Hill, Washington. And this is where we start to get to, like, just the tip of the iceberg in terms of creepy stuff with Steve, because he's just, like, literally the worst person I've ever heard of in my life. Mm -hmm. um, he would video Susan without her knowledge. Oh, nice. Um, and one time there's records that indicate that she allowed him to massage her feet and her back. And I do see, just like a, as a side note, I see like a lot of like victim blaming towards Susan for like allowing her father-in-law to do this. Mm -hmm. But if you put yourself, put yourself in her shoes, like, he could be seen as somebody that's in the, the power in terms right, of the yeah. relationship. He's the father-in-law. He's yeah. the one that, like, clearly had some sort of intimidation over her. Right. And honestly, like, Josh didn't do anything to help the situation. Like, yeah. Susan would talk to him about it, and she he would blame Susan for seducing his father. Mm. Okay. okay. <laughs> well. Um, so the Cold podcast, podcast actually plays a clip from Steve's journal, filming himself after this massage incident where Susan, like, massaged, like, mm -hmm. got a massage from Steve, and he's undressing himself in the video, and he's saying, and describing itself as, as the most erotic experience of his entire life. Ew. And remember, this is his daughter-in-law. Ew, what does he have, like, an audio journal? Yeah, yeah, he that's did audio weird. journals, as did, as did like, Josh. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's a weird thing <laughs> yeah. to have. Josh did audio journals as well. Like, oh, well, like father, like son. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess that's, like, 
olden days YouTube, though. Yeah, I, I guess, guess so. But, and right? they were, like, very, like, creepy. Like, you... I wish I could describe it, but again, like, you can totally check it out on the Cole podcast. The way that he sounds when he's saying it is just so, like, you get chills yeah, the way yeah. that you, the way he's describing it. Because, again, it's just such a creepy dynamic. Like, oh, yeah. think about it. It's your father-in-law. Like, yeah. You think you could That's trust gross. that guy. Yeah. When was this? Like, what year? Um, it was right after their marriage, so 2001. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um... So then there's also an incident where they're in a car together, like just Susan and Steve, and he's he doesn't think that he has the audio recording. Again, he's doing this audio journal thing, but he thinks he shuts it off. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. And um, you can hear him saying to Susan, he's confessing his love to her. Oh, nice. Okay. He says, I'm, quote, I'm literally falling in love with you. It's all I can think about. And... Like, you can hear Susan's response. She's so uncomfortable, and she's trying to explain to him, like, you're my father-in-law. Like, my dad doesn't even really give me a kiss on the cheek. Like, it's not something that is appropriate. And so, again, it's just, like, he's in control. He's the one. Like, she's literally trapped in a car with this guy. She doesn't have anywhere to go. She can't get out. Um, And so she actually does this time confront Josh about it. And again, he says, like, well, why were you seducing my father? Ew. Well, that's (laughs) so weird. So I'm just painting a picture for you. This is a great family. (laughs) (laughs) Of where this is going to go. Oh, my gosh. So despite all of this, um, Susan does stay with Josh. And again, I'm not at all blaming her. I'm just surprised that anybody would stay in any sort of relationship like this. Um, and they give birth to their first child, Charlie. Side note, Charlie and Brayden are the most adorable children in the are world. They? You have to, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so Charlie's born in 2005, but of course the birth did not go without any incident. Mm-hmm. Josh uh, doesn't drive her to the hospital. Right, Susan has to ask her parents to take her because Why? he's... You know, he's working on his computers. Oh, he has, he has things to do. Yeah. Audio journals. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Probably. <laughs> he does show up eventually, about an hour late. He gets to the hospital, and he's still working on his computers mm-hmm. up until literally the minute Charlie is born. Right. Nice. That's mm-hmm. what all guys do. Yeah. yeah. They're <laughs> Um, and then 2007 rolls around, and their second child, Brayden, is born. And then this is kind of where things really start to pick up in terms of marital distress. Um, Josh locks Susan out of their joint bank account, and he, um, you know, she's forced to set up her own bank account at this point to kind of keep right. her own money so yeah. that she can come and go as she pleases. Um and the family has to file for bankruptcy in 2007. And then at this point, Josh gets rid of their second car. And so they have just one car at this point with, you know, two kids. Mm-hmm. And so she's forced to ride her bike. Oh, my God. About 15 miles <gasps> round trip back and forth to work oh every day. Oh, my God. And it wasn't like it was, like, side roads. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. It was, like, a major road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like you can kind of see that he's starting to right. get a little bit controlling, right? Okay. Slightly. Yeah. <laughs> Just slightly. So around this time, um, June 2007, mm-hmm. Josh forces Susan to purchase a five-year term life insurance policy for half a million dollars. Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> and then less than a year later, by March 2008, he bumped it up to $1 million, ah. making himself the sole beneficiary of the just policy. Just him? Right, of course. Not even the kids. Right. Wow, mm-hmm. nice. Okay, just making sure we're all on the same page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the Cold Podcast is quoted as saying that Susan would often put journal entries in um, her private obviously private journal, around this time about how easy it would be to make her biking back and forth to work look like an accident. And she was even heard by friends at work as saying she was worth more to Josh dead than alive. Oh, God, oh so she God. knows. She realizes. Oh, that is self-aware. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Wow. And she still stayed with Yeah. Him. That's how yeah. controlling people right. are. Yeah. You can tell. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, but, good question, Bridget. By mm-hmm. 2008, she starts to describe having a fear of Josh mm-hmm. and um, that she indicates she does want to file for a divorce in her journals, okay. but she's fearful of what she, he would do to her or the boys, whether mm-hmm. he would take the boys and not allow her to see them. Yeah. She just, like, was too afraid to kind of make that move. So she did journal about it, though, um, and in June 2008, she wrote a last will and testament, but she hid it at work because she was afraid that Josh He'll would see it. it. So in the, the will, she um, is quoted as saying, um, she has extreme turmoil in my marriage, and quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Nice. So she, Ooh. wow. She, like, knew right away. Yeah. That's sad. Um, about one month later, she did a video recording, which is available on YouTube if you do want to check it out. Um, and she's actually documenting all of her assets. So she's seen going around oh. her entire house, showing like everything, all of their property, all of their home. And basically she's saying like in the event something was to happen, if they have like a divorce, so they can she can show like all of the basically like how much things cost yeah yeah what she owns everything like that and the video is still up as far as i'm aware really yeah wow um and then in so susan's friend was interviewed for the cold podcast and she remembers around the time of june 2009 susan told her directly quote if anything ha- ever happens to me make sure they look at josh oh shit. that is horrifying wow to, like, know mm-hmm. that you're with somebody that's like, like if I die <laughs> look at that yeah right. like that's so right. scary. that's crazy yeah and yeah. nobody did anything well you mean like to help her yeah. before I mean yeah well, what are people gonna do though like tell she her she has the right to yeah. She's gonna say no, yeah she's unfortunately she so. has the right to well, I guess you're stay right. in it yeah it sucks but yeah, yeah. okay so is that a good background yes yeah okay <laughs> okay <laughs> So, back to the morning of December 7th. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> okay, so Debbie Caldwell is the daycare worker for Charlie and Brayden. When the boys did not show up, she got a little worried. She called the house. There was no answer. She called Susan's job. No answer. She called Josh, Josh's job. No answer. And both didn't show up to work, but they didn't call out of work. So, so like, they were a little no bit concerned, like, what either. happened. So, she decided to actually... She owned... It was like a kind of like a private daycare mm-hmm. that she could just like take all of the kids with her that oh, she had and she was cool. like I'm going to go to the house and check out what's going on so she showed up to the house and it's on Sarah Circle and there's no tire tracks there's freshly laid snow no footprints 
So mm, now she's okay. really getting worried. Right. Um, she goes to the front door. There's no answer. So she calls the boy's emergency contacts, who is Jennifer Graves, and this is Josh, Josh's sister. This okay. is the oldest sister. She also had not heard from the family, so she starts to get worried because mm-hmm. Debbie's explaining the whole situation. So she heads over to the house. The first phone call is placed to 911 at 9.53 a.m. by Josh's mom, Terry, and officers Brady and Rose arrive to the home around 10.02 a.m. They notice that all the doors and windows are locked, but suspiciously, all of the windows are covered, but there's one window that seems to have a breeze blowing the curtains. Hmm. Okay. From the inside. From the inside, because everything's locked. Everything's shut. That's creepy. So a sergeant is called to the scene and asked for permission to break the window at 11.39 a.m. as no one's still heard from the family at this point. The the first thing that the officers notice is that there's two wet spots on the floor and the couch, as well as the couch, it's very wet. And there's two big, large box fans that are clearly trying to dry the scene. Oh, wow. So the house is empty, the garbage cans are empty, but Susan's purse is still there. So it's not like she would she have like left and taken her bag with her. By 1.30 p.m., Detective Maxwell is called in to assist establish, and establish some sort of idea what of what's going on. Yeah. So when the detective gets there, he notices that the home had no obvious signs of a struggle, no signs of robbery, but the cloud... The, Couch, huh, sorry, the couch, <laughs> <laughs> couch had very clearly been uh, cleaned in an attempt to be dried and tied up whatever was right. going on. He also noticed that there was a vacuum and a steam cleaner in the middle of the room. Huh. So he places a phone call to Susan and it goes straight to voicemail. Mm-hmm. Um, as they're waiting at the scene, a woman named Giovanna Owens, who's a neighbor of the family, comes up and she says that she just spoke with Josh. Oh. So it's around 3 p.m. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, what are you talking about? Like, we've all been calling him. Why is he calling you of all people? Yeah, the police yeah. are calling him. So he says, oh, I'm out and I have the boys, but I'll be home soon. There's no mention of Susan. Mm-hmm. So it's later discovered that Giovanna was the last person to see Susan alive. Because she was with them at the Powell House the night before, and Josh had made Susan and Giovanna pancakes, and suddenly Susan was like, oh, I don't feel good. I'm going to go lay down. I need to take a nap. And so Josh then kind of like politely and gently kicked Giovanna out of the house, (laughs) and he was like, I'm going to take the boys sledding. And so that was the last time she saw them, and he left the house around 5.30 p.m. So, the day before, sorry. The, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the day before. Okay. So on the 6th. So. A weird time to make pancakes. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> the only thing I'm thinking yeah. about. <laughs> so, like so. maybe breakfast for dinner? I guess so. <laughs> 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 random. <laughs> so now, like, the police still can't reach this guy. He's only calling the neighbor, not responding to police. So. He now it's 5 p.m. on December 7th. His wife has been missing. The family's still not been right. seen all day. Jennifer, Josh's sister, gets a call from Josh at 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. And Jen says, "Like, what's up, bro? Like, where are you? What's going yeah. on? The police are here." And he's like, "Oh, I'm with. I'm. I'm. I've just been around. Um, I was at work." And she's like, 
Mm, no, you weren't. Like, we know you weren't at work. Yeah. And he's like, okay, all right, fine. I got caught up in the snow. And she says, okay, so where is Susan? And he says, oh, she's been at work all day. And he's like, no, like, we know she's not <laughs> yeah. at work. Like, with what are you story. doing? <laughs> so his only reply to that is like, okay, what do you know? So he just gave so up already. Like, oh, she didn't go to work? Right. What yeah. the heck? Right. He literally just said, what do you know? So, what? Yeah. like, red flags are starting to go off, and the fact that you're not like, oh, shit, what do you mean she wasn't at yeah. work? Yeah. Like, like, start panicking, you know? So, she tells him, like, you, like, just get to the house. Like, the police right. are here. Your yeah. wife is missing. You have the boys. Thank God the boys are okay. Right. Let's just figure out what's going on. Again, this is at 5 o'clock. Mm-hmm. He doesn't show up to the house until, like, 6.40, almost two hours later. Right. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> Without Susan. Susan is still missing. The boys are there, though. The boys are there. He has the boys, but he shows up, and the police are, like, clearly pissed off because they've been yeah. waiting. Yeah. So, he's finally brought in for an interview with police that night, and they're like, can you just tell us what's been going on for the last 24 hours? Yeah. And obviously, he's extremely evasive. He tells them, oh, my phone was off because I was trying to save battery. I didn't want to lose battery. Which, like, okay, maybe that could be fine if that's a valid answer. Except that the detective noticed that there was a phone charger in the van the entire time. (laughs) So he's not smart. (laughs) Yeah. And then this is, like, what, like, just literally doesn't make any sense to me. He tells the detectives that he decided to take the boys sledding and to roast marshmallows in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the snowstorm, on a Sunday. And he didn't realize that it was Sunday until it was too late, but he took them at like 1 a.m. I remember, they're young boys. Took them at 1 a.m.? Yeah, they're they're young boys. They're like 7 and 4. So what are didn't you doing? She say, didn't he say at five? That was when Giovanna saw them last night. Oh, week. and then. But he may have come back. Came back and, and then, then gone back. back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when the, de- the detective was like, okay, cool, you took them out sledding at a dumb hour. Okay. Where did you go? He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know the name of it. I can't recall. Oh, so he's It was literally dumb. yesterday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But. Um, on the morning of December 7th when he was coming home, he does recall he stopped at a car wash. Oh. Of course oh, he does. Oh, that's the detail you're right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But he can't recall which one. Yeah. Right, of course. Right. Yeah. Why would you? But he definitely cleaned out his car. Remember? Right. Yeah, for right. sure. Yeah. He knows that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, after he's driving around aimlessly, he does remember he stopped at Susan's office to pick her up from work because he does do that sometimes. <laughs> Because he's a nice guy. Right. He's such a good guy. Yeah. Um, but he couldn't figure out how she would have made it to work if he had the only van and it had snowed that morning so she wouldn't have rode her bike. What is he? What was he on drugs? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. He also does manage to throw in the fact that Susan asked him to clean the couch as a chore, which is why it was wet. Uh, oh, he was like, by the way, the couch. Deep clean. <laughs> yeah. That's something I would want to do. Clean. Deep clean the couch. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I just, I don't know. I feel like it'd be fun, like a carpet cleaner on the couch. 
Okay. No, all right, well, moving on. Back to you. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> so at this point, Detective Maxwell is like super fed up with Josh, and he just asked him straight up, "Did you take her to the Pony Express, which is basically this place where they go camping? Like the family's known to have gone camping mm-hmm. before." And Josh says, "No, obviously." And so the detective asks for permission to search the van. Mm-hmm. And Josh says, only if I can watch you the entire time and I can stop you at any That's point. That's how you know people are sketchy. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. So the family van is searched by police. And here is what is found. Um, all of this information was provided by Cold Podcast. So it's pretty good stuff. So get ready. All right. Okay. So a blue plastic tarp is spread out on the back of the carpet of, in the back part of the van. Mm-hmm. On the tarp are some tools, including a wood-handled shovel, a rake, a broom, a humidifier. There's a plastic tote, and inside... <laughs> I just looked up at both of your faces. Or like, what? Why would you need a humidifier? <laughs> um... <laughs> there's a plastic tote. In, inside the tote, there's unopened camping equipment like a poncho, emergency blanket, a tablecloth, tent stakes, but no tent, and a multi-tool. There's also a circular sword, a box cutter, a folding handsaw, five-gallon plastic ga- gas can, a gas-powered generator. So, What's a circular sword? Sword. Sword. It's like you cut wood with it. It's like oh, like, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know why I read sword. Okay. I heard sword. Um, in the rear passenger seats, they found a queen comforter and other blankets, which maybe that's fine because, like, if you actually are going camping or unless you're wrapping a body. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Either or. With the tarp and everything. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, in the storage compartment, they located a box of gloves. Maybe not as damning nowadays with COVID, but right. like back then. I mean, no yeah, COVID, come on. No COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most damaging thing that they found was located during the search in the console. So, like, you know, that middle part mm-hmm. between the two uh, driver's seat and passenger seat. There was, like, a tiny tray that could be lifted out of the console. Right. And they found Susan's cell phone. Oh, nice. But the SIM card was missing. Of course. Because of course obviously. Yeah. That hides all the information. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they asked him, like, what is going on? Like, why do you have Susan's cell phone? And he was like, oh, my God, I don't know. Like, how did they get there? It was so bizarre. Wow. And he was like, oh. He did not cover up his story at all. <laughs> yeah. well, so like, he, did, <laughs> he did come up with, like, an excuse. He said, like, oh, shoot, I had borrowed her phone yesterday because I needed numbers out of it, and they must have forgotten that I had it. But he, they checked her phone records, mm-hmm. and he called her twice and left her two voicemails that afternoon. <laughs> So, like, if you know, if you knew that you had her phone all along, like, why are you calling her? It It doesn't make any sense. Um, So, at this point, he's not arrested yet because it's a no-body case Mm -hmm. and there's no evidence of murder. She's just missing. Mm -hmm. And also, like, he's the husband, so it would be really easy. Like, Detective Maxwell said, it would be really easy for, like, a defense attorney to be like, well, it's the husband and wife. They always have each other's cell phones kind of thing. So he is released, and Josh agrees to come back for another interview at 9 a.m. the next morning. Okay. So 9 a.m., I mean, 8 a.m. rolls around December 8th, and Detective Ellis calls Josh to confirm for the interview. Obviously, he has an answer. And neighbors come forward saying that they witnessed Josh cleaning the entire home that morning. Naturally. Remember, the home hasn't been searched yet because there's no warrant. Yeah. 
So Josh eventually shows up for the interview around noon. God, just no concepts of time. And um, during his second interview, he is called. Uh, he's. I'm sorry. He calls his attorney this time. Of course. And his he says, "quote I definitely should have my attorney." And the detective says, "I didn't even read you your Miranda rights. Do you feel like you're under arrest?" So the interview does proceed though, um, because he does kind of agree to give some information. But again, mm-hmm. it's like really spotty. It's just like not a lot of good information. And he becomes even more suspicious, in my opinion. Like, I just don't, again, like, they try and ask him more details about the sledding and, like, where did you go, what's going on, and he just has no idea. Most of the time his answers are, I don't know, or, like, he literally just says, who knows. (laughs) What a weirdo. (laughs) Yeah. So, during the interview, he claims to have reached the campsite with the boys around 4 a.m. Monday morning. Which they, they meaning investigators, did actually, like, try to do the timeline of the time he said he left the house to the time he would get to the campsite, and it did kind of line up. Um, So, Detective Maxwell asked Josh in-depth questions about the car wash, where is it, what road is it on, what does it look like. Every answer was, I couldn't tell you, or I don't know. And at the end of the interview, Detective Maxwell actually does read him his Miranda rights, but tells him, you're not under arrest. But I have your car and I have your van and you're not getting the back. Oh. Um, and they ask him if he will continue talking and he literally says, let me think about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what a weird man that guy is. Yeah. So, it's so, so annoying. Um, but simultaneously, while this is going on, the children are asked to help kind of interview. Right. So, his sister brings them in So and they... <laughs> This is, like, it's just so sad because, the, you know, the, a lot of times people say, like, kids or in interviews aren't reliable, but I really think kids can provide a oh, lot yeah. of good they information. Yeah. No matter yeah. what. So. Yeah. yeah. So Charlie, um, during interviews, said that Mommy had, quote, gone camping with them but stayed in the place with the shiny rocks and pretty flowers. Oh, God. I don't like that. Yeah. And then according to Oxygen.com, the younger son, Brayden, later drew a picture at the campsite depicting a car with three passengers Braden was asked who was in the drawing and he said it was his father his brother and himself and when they asked where mommy was Braden said quote mommy is in the trunk oh shit oh my god so Josh is confronted with this and like adamantly denies that the boys are confused they, they're thinking about like a time they went camp. Mommy went camping with us another time. Where she was also Where in she the truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so he the interview with Josh goes on for four hours, and they let Josh leave, but uh-huh. not his van. And so the crime team is working hard to draft warrants for the house as well as the van. And it's worth noting that they asked Josh to leave his cell phone with them when he left, so that they could get some information off his cell phone but when he leaves the cell phone they find out that during the interview when they stepped out to kind of work on getting those warrants and you know get their facts straight he actually slipped the sim card out of his cell phone i knew it i knew he did that i mean uh, hey listen that's the first smart thing he's done so far yeah yeah i mean relatively smart but to cover his tracks but smart right yeah (laughs) 
Um, so obviously at this point, warrants are granted for both the home and the van and the van for the van, the cadaver dog doesn't really find anything. They don't, he's not interested in anything, but they did find remnants of the meal that he cooked the night before. So Lindsay, the weird pancakes. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were there. <laughs> yeah. But they, they tested it for drugs in the event that he had maybe poisoned her to kind of subdue her. Or knock her out, but the results were negative. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's a floorboard under the driver's seat, which contained another garbage bag, but it contained heavily burnt drywall or sheet and like sheetrock, and some sort of like metal object. But it was so burnt beyond recognition, they couldn't figure out what it was. So they sent it to an FBI FBI lab for analysis, and they just determined it was but it was inconclusive as to what the item was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now the house. Oh. <laughs> Susan's blood was found using what the cold podcast describes as blue star, which detects hemoglobin. Mm-hmm. And a series of small spots of her blood were located on tile between the couch and the front door. Um, if you look at the on the coldpodcast.com, they actually show like the, the picture of the tile and then with the luminol like what it looks like and it is really so so small it was not visible to the naked eye Mm -hmm. um and it wasn't like as if somebody had been shot it was so small detective maxwell said it was almost as if like somebody leaned over and coughed and it was like specks of blood like that's how tiny it was um and there were also small stains noted on the upper part of the headrest of the couch where her shoulders would have been, mm-hmm. but it was in like a swiping motion. Okay. So they didn't, they couldn't really figure out what really that meant. There was no blood on the circular saw or the plastic sled that were found in the minivan. The blankets that were in the car the night before appeared to have been cleaned. Of course. Right. Yeah. And the detectives found a 26 to 27 page letter that Susan wrote to Josh the year before about how she wasn't necessarily like asking for a divorce, but saying like we need, need to get to our acts to right. together. Yeah. Um, and the laundry they found eight clean washcloths, which were the day before were sitting soggy in the bathtub. Oh my. And they also removed five computers, seven hard drives, and two laptops. Like, who has what? Yeah, what? That? Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. Unfortunately, the police did have to go back multiple times to the home because they left behind a lot of items that they didn't think they needed. But then afterwards, we're like, oh, shit, we probably, probably should have gotten yeah. that. So yeah. who knows, like, if what it was tampered with yeah. or what. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. Now, <laughs> while the warrants were being issued remember josh was let go right but his van was kept Mm -hmm. he disappears for 18 hours nice nobody knows where he is he ends up like renting a car and drives about 807 miles so four like 400 miles back and forth Mm -hmm. to utah but today to like to reasons unknown this day they still have no idea what he did or what happened what? Why he, he just went to Utah. He just left. Bolted. With the kids or without the kids? Without the kids. They were with his sister. Okay. But they, they, and the police had no idea. Like, they uh-huh. literally, like, were working on all this stuff, and then they found out later on, oh, God, Josh is missing. Yeah. And he was 18 hours, like, he was gone for just 18 hours. So, yeah. 
Um, and they're also simultaneously searching the desert, the mines, trying to find Susan with the helicopters because they're, you know, he's saying right. he went to this place, so yeah. they're thinking, well, maybe she's there because he took her there. Um, they end up finding someone who confirms they did see Josh's car at that, that location that he said he went to, as well as someone who matches his description there. But nothing further really went of that. They didn't mm-hmm. find Susan at that time. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, creepy old father-in-law Steve also goes MIA during the time period that Susan is missing. Yeah. Um, the Cole podcast provides information that his phone records, so Steve's phone records, mm-hmm. showed that he had been in Washington the day that she went missing, so where they live, mm-hmm. and then called out of work the next two days where he remained in Washington. Huh. That was sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> he was covering up the body. Who knows? Huh. Huh. So by December 14th, so this is like seven days after Susan goes missing, Josh goes to the boys' daycare and picks up all of their belongings and tells Debbie Caldwell, which is the first person that found right. out they were no, you know, missing, yeah. that they will no longer be coming back ever. And then he calls on December 15th, calls Susan's chiropractor and cancels all of her future appointments. Why? That's an oddly specific thing to go and do. If your wife is just missing. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. So, by January 2010, so like a month later, Mm -hmm. um, he moves to the outskirts of Puyallup, Washington, and there's still no signs of Susan. The police are still searching endlessly for her, but right. he just kind of like up and moves. How is he, he just allowed to do that? Because he's not arrested. Yeah, he's but not, isn't he a person of interest? Yeah, but he's that not is. involved in the case. Oh, okay. So I mean, he's involved in the case, but he's literally not arrested. Right. So yeah, they can't do anything. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. So by the summer of 2010, he enrolls Charlie into a YMCA camp program, Mm -hmm. and shortly after, the staff becomes concerned about some comments that he makes, he meaning Charlie, Mm -hmm. makes, um, which, like, makes sense. He probably witnessed a horrific murder of his mother, so he's going to be making, like, terrible comments. So here's a statement from two workers, um, and at the time, it's redacted because Charlie was a child. Right. So he says... It says, and this is from the Cold Podcast, mm-hmm. it says, while our team was playing in the sandbox on the field at the Redacted, tells us a story about how to kill a bear. Redacted, so I'm assuming it's Charlie, mm-hmm. explained that the best way to kill a bear was to dig a big hole and put the bear into it, then throw rocks on it, cover it with a tree so no one can see it. Then he said that you have to plant a raspberry bush over it, and that's, quote, that's how you kill it. He also told us that th- those are the best raspberry. Be- be- sorry, those are the best raspberries because the bear is underneath it. Huh. When we asked him how he knew this, redacted, so I'm assuming Charlie told us it was quote because I saw someone do it. When I insisted on knowing when he saw someone do it, he hesitated and said, "Um, on TV." Huh. It's interesting, didn't he say she was with the rocks and the flowers? Yeah. yeah. So, um, again, that's like a direct quote, like picked like a statement from from his daycare workers, uh-huh. um, and that's also from the Cold Podcast. So then, <clears throat> about a week later, Charlie talks about quote during a campfire activity, it was important to kill Mormons. End quote. 
so clearly he's focusing on death and killing people right. and why it's important to do so. And then Josh also makes some interesting comments to daycare workers. He asked one of the employees if Susan would be able to pick up the boys. Huh. What? But she's not. <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah. What? Right? Yeah. Doesn't really make sense if your wife is missing. Yeah. Why are you concerned about that? Yeah. What? <laughs> I know. Okay. That's weird. And then in the same year, Josh enrolls Charlie in kindergarten, which is good, some sense of normalcy right. for him. But he begs the staff to ensure that Susan Powell and the entire Powell family uh, would not be allowed to ever be near Charlie. He actually drafts a letter to the school oh. district. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically he's like insisting that Chuck... Cox and Judy Cox, which are Susan's parents, are not at all allowed near Charlie because they're essentially like he's just saying like bullying them. Mm-hmm. But he's also saying it's for the physical safety and emotional well-being of the boy of Charlie. Um, and then he says that I'm gonna just quote this one part. This is also from the Cold Podcast. Despite sharing my last name, these individuals are also to have no contact with Charlie while he is under the care of the school district. Susan Powell, and then he put in parentheses, Charlie's mother, who is currently a missing person. Like, literally so sent what? this to the school district. Okay. okay. So this is on September 19, 2010. So he then, in, I'm sorry, Josh, then enrolls the boys into a Puyallup Gem and Mineral Club. Um, and the group organizer, Nancy, writes a letter to the Washington Department of Social and Health Services, which I'll just call DHS. Um, due to some of her experiences with Josh and the boys, she later, she sent in a letter suggesting that Josh be required to, quote, take extensive parenting classes. <laughs> yeah. So, by 2011, there's still no signs of Susan, and at this point, Josh is absolutely forbidding Chuck and Judy, Susan's parents, to see the boys at all. He actually filed court paperwork citing that the Coxes were stalking him and the boys and that they were bullying them. Nice. So, with, with filing that, he actually ends up getting a temporary restraining order against the Coxes, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> he wanted a full domestic violence like court order. But it's an it's what's granted is technically like an anti harassment order, but it's granted both ways, saying that he can't go within five hundred feet of them and they can't go within five hundred okay. feet of him. All right. Were they doing anything? No. Or? So like from my understanding and my research, the, the the they were not. Like what happened the particular incident that led up to this was they had like bumped into each other at a Home Depot and because they Charlie well, I should say, yeah, I'll say Charlie because it's, well, not the boy, like the father, mm-hmm. Charlie Cox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hadn't, he hadn't seen his grandchildren. He wanted to see them that he like tried to say hi in Home Depot and Josh took that as like harassment. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So Chuck knew that Josh still had his daughter's private journals and he wanted those right. because that was his daughter's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, because he knew this, um, he basically started to try and get a hold of those, and he was trying to figure out a way to get them, because 
he, he asked Steve and Josh, can I have my daughter's journals? And they said, absolutely not. So he needed to try and figure out a way to get them from them. Mm-hmm. So be, because of this, because Chuck said, let me try and get them, mm-hmm. Steve and Josh basically end up setting themselves up for just like a total shit show at this point. So Josh and Steve do like their version of a media tour. And Steve went on NBC's Today Show on July 14th, 2011 and shared his theory that Susan had, quote, absconded to Brazil with another missing person, Stephen Kosher. So basically he's saying, like, Susan's not missing. She just chose to leave her family and went with this other missing person. So he person. Was like, came up with this conspiracy yeah. theory oh, but himself. the other yeah. guy was missing as well. The other guy was missing as well. So Steve's theory is she's not missing. She just wanted to leave her family to go be with this other missing guy. Right. And did so they, they're together in okay. Brazil. Did they know each other? No. People? No, no. Oh, that's weird. She probably Steve's just woke up like right. local missing people. <laughs> <laughs> like, that goes. Steve is oh, crazy. God. Steve is literally crazy. <laughs> so he then shows details and entries from Susan's private journals, which he later publishes online, which is, like, just so, like, it's it's, it's none of your business. And that's, like, super private. And Susan's journals, like, she shared a lot of intimate private details about her life, her relationships. So, because of this, the police start planning a multi-major state operation codenamed Operation Tsunami, and it includes court-authorized wiretap to monitor phone calls made and received on three separate phone lines. So they want Josh's mobile, I don't know, I said mobile phone. <laughs> Showing your age. I ta- like I put mobile. But yeah. So Josh's, they want Josh's cell phone, Steve's cell phone, and the home phone of the Powell house because Josh is living there at this point, basically. Mm-hmm. They also want, they also need the help. The, so the original police department needs the help of the new police department where Josh is currently right. residing to get that search warrant on Steve's home because that's where Josh is. Mm-hmm, and that right. they also think that's where Susan's journals are. They're publishing them everywhere. Huh. So they want the journals because they feel like it's going to hold first-hand knowledge of what happened, their relationship, their marital distress. That's going to give us a little bit of insight into what's going on. Right. Right. So, is anyone else freezing right now? Sorry. I'm cold. I'm fine. I'm cold. Okay. So they also want to obtain digital media, images, or paper evidence that might contain Josh's encrypted files because he's basically put, like, super hard passwords on everything and he's refusing to give them mm-hmm. to anybody. Okay. So this is the fun stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> so the search warrant is issued on, just, uh, I'm sorry, August 25th, 2011. All of the findings from the search warrant are, again, like, crazy details on the Cole podcast. Josh's bedroom includes several interesting items, including a multi-camera security system. Like, like, crazy. Like, I know people have ring doorbells. I'm not talking that. I'm talking, like, insane security system. Like, even in the house type of thing? He was, like, prepping for them to come. Like, he was watching every entry, every window, every door, everything. Everything. Um, All the documents for the SusanPowell.org website, which you would think would be, like, a website to... Help, help find her. his wife. Yeah. It was more like bashing her. Huh. Oh. Also, a banker's box containing nine volumes of Susan's journals. So they found the journals. Oh. Now, <laughs> Steve's room, so Tasha's mm-hmm. dad, had some of the most disturbing finds. So just a warning. Okay. Um, multiple sets of three-ring binders with songs dedicated and inspired to Susan. Huh. 
A walk-in closet had a filing cabinet cabinet that was locked. They obviously broke in. Mm-hmm. And it contains, so the top drawer held Steve's trophies of Susan. A black bra of hers. Hmm. Her red blouse. A plastic container full of temple garments. So these are actually like garments that she wore under her LDS, her regular clothes. It was like her LDS clothes. So Latter-day Saints, sorry. So he stole them out of her laundry. Right. And there's voyeur photos, photos, voyeur (laughs) photos of Susan. What does that mean? He took photos of her without her knowing. Yeah. Oh. That's my big words. Um, there's wedding photos photos of Susan and Josh, but he cut Josh's face out of the picture. Oh, wow. Did he glue his own on yeah. too? Did he? Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Then there's this is like really sick. There's plastic bags with tampons from Susan. Ew, like used? Mm-hmm. That they were dated? Yeah, he dated when she used them. And so her nail clippings. Mm-hmm. The bottom drawer contained just good old regular old porn. Oh. And then there was... normal. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was home recorded tapes, like his audio tapes, like journals of him. There's more voyeur videos of Susan, so he's just vo- videoing her without any knowledge, Gross. as well as other women that had no idea he was oh. videoing them. Mm-hmm. There's video cassettes around the room as well, some that have Susan's name on it, and then they locate Steve's private journals, including over 2,000 pages of his sick obsession with Susan. The police later find a safe deposit box at a bank in Josh's name, which contained one single item, and it is a hard drive that he was hiding from the police, which was all his backup information in case the police did find all of his stuff. <laughs> That's funny, so they found both of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, according to CBS 2KUTV, police arrested Stephen Powell on September 22, 2011 for child pornography and voyeurism charges. Of, uh, after police find thousands of images of young girls and women, including the Susan photos that were taken without their knowledge, and two neighborhood girls. Wow. Charlie and Brayden, of course, at this time are then placed in co- state custody while the police investigate to see if anyone else know about Steve's activities. Um, immediately following this, the... Um, sorry, immediately following this, Susan's parents file in court to get custody of Charlie and Brayden oh, because right. they don't want to risk Josh right. getting custody of the boys. Right. Makes sense. A judge temporarily rules that Josh Powell cannot publish Susan's journals um, because her parents are still fighting to obtain copies right. of the journals. Yeah. So the court ruling temporarily places the boys with Chuck and Judy. Still looking for Susan <laughs> in the deserts and the mines. And several cadaver dogs actually indicate for a small pile of rocks on the eastern flank of Topaz Mountain on September 14, 2011. However, nothing comes of this, unfortunately. By November 2011, Chuck Cox files a motion with the courts to ask the judge to appoint a guardian for Charlie and Braden so that a uh, custody investigation could begin. And the court date is set for January 13, 2012. According to CBS 2 KUTV, a website is created just days before the custody hearing by Josh Powell with the help of his lovely family. Side note, the only good member of his family that he has is Jennifer Graves. Right. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is horrible. The site had claimed that jo- uh, 
Chuck and Judy Cox had abused Charlie and Brayden, and Josh was trying to do this, obviously, because he didn't want them to take custody of the boys. But the police find hundreds of disturbing images on Josh's computer, including simulated child pornography, bestiality, incest, and because of that, (laughs) on February 1st, 2012, a Washington state judge rules Charlie and Brayden will remain with Chuck and Judy. Nice. Thank God. Yeah. I know. I know. The judge orders that Josh Powell must get a psychosexual evaluation by a court-appointed examiner. Oh, did not know that was a thing. What? Really? Psychosexual? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. CBS 2 KUTV reports that it's found, and quote, it's found that Powell, meaning Josh, sorry. Excuse me? Josh, <laughs> I don't know what was going on. What happened there? Well, my brain couldn't compute. <laughs> um, it's found that Josh has narcissistic personality traits. Duh. Yeah. Shown by, quote, <laughs> his inability to admit even small personal shortcomings or weaknesses. The examiner also found that Powell has, quote, adequate parenting skills, steady employment, and no criminal record. Mm, debatable. The examiner decides to recommend that Josh Powell has supervised visitations with his sons several times a week, end quote. So... This is, like, the worst part of the story. So I'm just going to forewarn people that it's going to have a lot of sensitive information. Um, On December 5th, 2012, around noon, Charlie and Brayden attend a supervised home visit with the social worker Elizabeth Griffin at the rented house of their father, Joshua Powell. He is waiting for the boys and opens the door, saying, quote, I have a surprise for you. The boys were excited to see their dad. They took off the head of the social worker. Elizabeth... Hurries behind them, making it to the door when the boys just made it inside. Josh looks right into Elizabeth's eyes, slams the door shut without saying a word, locking it. Elizabeth found this strange because it had never happened before. She started pounding on the door, ringing the bell, yelling at Josh to open the door with no response. The social worker suddenly hears sobs, a child screaming and crying from the back of the home with the unmistakable smell of gasoline filling the air surrounding her area. Oh, shit. She becomes nervous, runs to her car to dial 911 at 12.08 p.m. Here's a clip from the 911 call. Actually, I'm not going to play the call yet. Hold on. <laughs> I, I'm realizing where I'm going to start the call, okay. so it doesn't make sense. So in the phone call, you can hear her screaming, saying, you know, this could become life-threatening. And he says, well, we have to respond to more life-threatening issues first. Oh, nice. Okay. So she says that they just lost, he just lost custody of the boys. This could be an issue. So he, you know, after she moves to safety, she kind of gets her car out of the way because she's concerned she smells the gas. The house explodes. The windows break. There's an explosion. It's only eight minutes after the first 911 call. So she calls again and she's screaming. He exploded the house. He exploded the house. And you can hear the frustration in her voice. Where I'm picking it up from is going to be like a little bit into the first phone call and then going into the second Second phone call because I just kind of want you to hear a little bit.
to help somebody that had fallen and they were bleeding, gushing blood out of their head and like that was much more fast paced right. than yeah. this and I feel like the guy was like just so slow and he, he was didn't like believe her, really. I felt like he just didn't take it seriously and I know that he's gotten a lot of flack especially for the beginning of the 911 call it is available on YouTube I'm mm-hmm. sure you guys can post yeah. it on your yeah. link mm-hmm. um, and then he just like doesn't like, even when she's, like, I'm concerned for their lives, he's just like, well, we have to respond to it. Like, yeah, like I don't like to blame people for right. the murders right. that wasn't the murder, but, like, right. you could have saved, saved literally two kids' yeah. lives by right. just right. being like, okay, we'll send somebody. Yeah. 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 And I know the it. poor social worker, like, literally, I know she left her job after this, obviously. Really? But, I would too. Yeah, she just, like, could And she said, like, I mean, in my opinion, I don't know that she necessarily did anything wrong. She called 911 right well, away. The kids her, ran yeah. ahead of her. Yeah. Like, it wasn't her fault. Not she her. Oh, 911. Like, yeah. they had supervised visits. She was supervising the How visit. How much time but, was in between each phone call? Um, actually, you know, I'm not really sure. So there, there was eight minutes between the first phone call and the time he well, blew up what, the house. That's what I meant. So I'm assuming probably, probably yeah. about eight minutes. Well, because if you think about it, like, if you call the cops now, it sometimes it takes them like a half hour even to get to yeah, you. Yeah, so, I, like, I don't think they but took I feel it like seriously. You're yeah. saying like. There's two kids inside. I right. smell gasoline. I don't know what this guy can do. You'd think they'd be yeah, like, yeah. maybe respond Run a little bit faster it. than yeah. just being like, mm, we'll get to you when we get to yes. you. And it's about like a 10 minute long YouTube link. So mm-hmm. the first phone call is about like six or so minutes. 
and the whole first four minutes are is him saying like I don't understand how you can supervise uh, your yourself. Like, that, what like, are you that's talking not the about? important part. Yeah. yeah. And like she you know, she was so so flustered. Like he was he asked her, like, where are you? What's the address? And she's like, I don't know. Like I have to run in the car and get my papers. Like she was just trying to get Josh to open right. the door. Like she was so flustered, so scared. It just became such a terrible, terrible scene. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that that morning, Josh had actually called his sister, Alina, and left her a voicemail saying goodbye, and that he could not live without his boys. Um, and unfortunately, after an examination of the scene and an autopsy, the boys' cause of death, meaning Charlie and Brayden, mm-hmm. the cause of death was determined to be carbon monoxide poisoning. However, um, this is just like, it's just so terrible. The coroner report did indicate that Charlie and Brayden did actually have significant chopping injuries on their head and their neck oh as my well. God. And a hatchet was recovered at oh the scene near Josh's body. So the investigators believe that he actually attacked the boys with the hatchet before him becoming overwhelmed himself with smoke and fumes. But what an idiot. Like, what? Why? Yeah. yeah. Well, What's the I point? can't live without the boys, but when let me set the house first. on fire and right. I mean, my theory it. is that obviously he killed Susan, right. and they yeah. were probably gonna find, you know, figure it out at some point. Yeah. So he couldn't be without the boys. So let me just get rid of everybody. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. No sense whatsoever. Yeah. So the fire investigation found two five gallons of gasoline on the premise, as well as evidence that gasoline had been spread throughout the house which clearly indicates premeditation. To this day, Susan Powell's body has never been found. Really? And on May 21st, 2013, the West Valley City Police announced that they had closed the active investigation into her disappearance. Wow. So, I do have some information about the aftermath of this case. Okay. According to the Seattle Times, Stephen Powell was convicted of voyeurism in 2012. Served a 30-month sentence. The trial court dismissed the charge of child possession. I'm sorry, no, not child possession. Child pornography in 2012. But the State Court of Appeals reinstated the charge in 2014. He was convicted of the crime in 2015, released from prison in July of 2017 after serving another two years. However, died of a heart attack just one year after being released from prison. So he he was never able to give the police any information. Mm. um, He probably wouldn't have anyway. No, no, no. The whole family was involved. Yeah. Um, Michael Powell, one of Josh's youngest brothers, actually, in my opinion, plays an interesting role in this case. It turns out that Michael actually sold his car for $100 to a junkyard just two weeks after Susan's disappearance. Huh. He claims there was a transmission issue. But as soon as the police had learned about him selling his car, he they immediately went to the auto body shop. Right. And luckily, the car was still there. It was sitting in the the yard. Mm-hmm. They the, so the whole podcast talks about how they immediately brought a cadaver dog with them, and they just kind of let the dog go yeah. in the yard. They wanted yeah. to see what would happen, and without any hesitation, the dog immediately went to Michael Powell's ca- car. Huh. And Ellis said the dog's name, I'm sorry, Detective Maxwell, Ellis Maxwell, said that the dog's name is Tug, and he sniffed around the rear end of the Taurus, which is the car, and then sat down, which is what he's trained to do. So Mm -hmm. when he detects odor of a cadaver, he sits down. Wow. 
So the police investigated heavily. They investigated Michael heavily and interviewed him. But he adamantly denied any involvement in the case. But if your car is smelling like a cadaver and you conveniently sell it two weeks after Susan goes missing. Yeah. So in 2013, he committed suicide. (gasps) So in March 2015, Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, won a very lengthy court battle with Terry and Alina Powell. So that's Josh's mom and his youngest sister Mm -hmm. over control over her estate. They sought to have her legally dead so that they could collect her life insurance. Oh, my God. Um... Thankfully, Chuck won, and they are also suing the Washington Department of Social Health Services, claiming that they, I'm sorry, Chuck Cox, Uh Susan's dad, because they felt that the agency was more focused on Josh's parental rights than the safety of the boys, and that they, quote, facilitated their deaths. Initially, the courts ruled against the Cox family. However, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed this ruling and allowed the case to proceed to trial in January 2019. Susan's family also is working on getting bills passed in Washington as well as in Utah so that it would restrict or block visitation rights for parents that are actively being investigated for murder. I feel like it's normal. it should be. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And this is just like one last update. It's like super, super recent. Mm Mm-hmm. So, according to KOMO News, in July 2020, a Pierce County jury found the State Department of Social and Health Services was negligent in the death of the two boys, and as a part of the verdict, jurors awarded $98 million to the estates of the two boys, Charlie and Brayden. However, literally just last week, September 15, 2020, a judge slashed the amount awarded to the Cox family. According to KSL.com, Pierce County Superior Court Judge Stanley Rambaugh, Rumbaugh, I don't know how to say it, but I don't really like this guy, Rumbaugh, said, quote, my conscience is still shocked by the verdict size today as it was on the day the verdict was delivered, end quote. The judge continued to say that it was clear to him that the graphic nature of the killings had played into the jury's decision. I mean, duh. Duh, yeah. yeah. As a result, the judge uh, cut the jury's Juror, juries, sorry, award to $32.8 million, or he said the parties could attempt to retry the case. So, like, they're still getting good money. Yeah, but, like, also fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you care yeah. if the violent nature of the crime impacted it's, their decision? Yeah, that's the point. Obviously, bro, <laughs> yeah. the two little boys were exploded and that's, hacked. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's obviously. That makes no sense. So, that's the horrible case, and... My theory is that Josh clearly killed her, buried her somewhere, but I think Michael was involved because the cadaver hit for Mm -hmm. his car, and I think the father was involved in hiding it. This whole family sounds like it's involved. Like, they all freaking know about it. I have a theory. Jennifer's the only one that was not involved, in my opinion. Yeah. She completely has been against um, Josh. Mm -hmm. She even, like, helped try to get... She wore a wire at one point to try and help so get... So she was, like, the only good egg mm-hmm. out of this She's family. written a book about it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have a theory. Yeah. <laughs> so Steve, the dad, right? Yeah. I think that Josh found out, found his, like, obsessive books, tapes, and all that shit, like, and that he, that he confessed his love to, to Susan, mm-hmm. but, like, to Josh... 
So, like, he confessed his love for Susan to Josh. Mm -hmm. And then Josh automatically blamed Susan and killed her. Mm. Took the dad's side, killed her. And then, like, the boys is just a sad afterthought. Like, he just really... so bad. That part, like, that part fucks me up more than anything. Because it's like, they didn't do anything. Right. Like, why... Yeah. They just got dragged into it. They got dragged into it. It's this like they were horrible. just like expendable. Right. Like. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so, so, so awful. So, I, it just sits uh, with me. Mom's home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> and we need to edit that out. She's I'm going to leave the whole thing. <laughs> My mom walks <laughs> in, <laughs> refuses to say hello, and then yells at us for not talking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the, I think this one stays with me the most because, like, She's just, she's never, like, I, I don't think they're ever going to find her. No. I was just like, how? But, like, where? Yeah. Because, like, they searched the whole they, Yeah, they went crazy property. searching for mines. They searched into, like, the Did dunes ever, and like, everything. Did they like, Utah? But I guess, like, where would you even start? Um, actually, that's a good question. I don't know if I recall seeing that in my research, but I know that they searched, like, crazy at all these places that he said, like, yeah. that they used to camp and where the boys who said they used to camp. They, like, even posted, like, videos of them searching into, like, deep into the mines and stuff. Yeah. And I couldn't find anything. That blows my mind. Nothing. So that's why I, I just, like, I get so upset about this case because I don't feel like the family is ever going to have right. any answers. They're not going to. Because now their grandkids are gone. And then the only oh, anybody who had information is, like. It's dead. Is gone. They're yeah. all, yeah. They're gone. So, that's unless insane. they some strange miracle. They find, like, audio like journals. Yeah. Or, yeah, or just, like, somebody's out camping and they find they their names or something. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, and then just the gruesome nature of the boys is just, like, That's just, that's right. the worst part. It's, like, that's so But also, like, mm-hmm. at least they don't have to deal with this anymore. Like, they don't have to. Well, yeah, but now they still have all these court cases right. going on yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so that's the case. I think wow. the moral of the story here is don't keep audio journals. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, an audio that. journal. <laughs> and don't be awfully obsessed with your daughter-in-law. Right. Yeah, right. Oh, also, like, yeah. I also don't you kill don't. anyone. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's yeah. usually the yeah. moral of the story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do hope that they get those laws passed about not allowing I feel like visitation. That's such, like, an How is it not? Yeah. That should already not happen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how we have visitation. But, but. That's really insane to me. Mm-hmm. Wow. At least, and or at least like visitation, like at a site, not, not at your, right. your own house. home. Yeah. 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 Like they do it. I like jails and not jails. No, like, um, we do like a neutral department of social yeah, services. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. That's what like I meant. That. I meant yeah. like a police station or something. And it was a rented home. Like, right. it wasn't his home, so yeah. he probably was prepping this the whole time. Cause he I couldn't... was going to say he could have had like forever to like, wow. do mm-hmm. this also. That's yeah. insane. Mm-hmm. Well, you did a good job. Well, thank you. You're Sorry, welcome. that was a lot of info. It wasn't. It was actually was really good. good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let us tell everyone where they can find you. Oh, like on your like your podcast. Oh, my Come on. I was like, this my is your chance. Social security number. Cell <laughs> <Still> number. <laughs> oh, you can check me out on Buffalo Chicken Slice the podcast. See, she says the podcast. Sorry, that's I need to fine, point that but out. you started it. <laughs> <laughs> but but our Instagram is just Buffalo Chicken Slice. It's okay. not the. Podcast. We'll tag you. Yeah, it's yeah. Buffalo Chicken Slice. Unfortunately, I won't be covering cases like this because Aaron won't let me. He's stupid. He, yeah. I don't understand why he wouldn't. But I can come here whenever you need me. Yeah. 
can I'll cover more cases. Aaron, if you're watching, no, listening, <laughs> you a hoe. What? Oh my god! I just, just want to so see. If, I just want to see if he'll be listening. <laughs> he said he was going to, because he knows I'm going to blow up. Oh, on all right, all right. <laughs> just kidding. I love you, Aaron. We're gonna backtrack. <laughs> So now I gotta do the thing where they say follow us on. Yeah. So follow us on Instagram at FIB Podcast. We keep leaving us ratings. I don't have we gotten any more. I don't know. I don't pay attention anymore. Yeah. Well, I we should. Like, I was one of them. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Well, you were, and we keep getting people from all over the world, which is like it's insane. Weird. Yeah. yeah. We really like that, and I look every time to see where people are from. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> make sure you let from. me know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, email us at Bridget oh, futuresbreakpod at gmail. And okay. tell us what cases to do because mm. mom just looked at me really creepy. <laughs> 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 um, so yeah, let us know what cases to do. If you find anything interesting, we're more than willing to do any of them. Yeah. Really. Anything too, like creepy, paranormal, True ghosts. True whatever the case may be. Right, yeah. Also, if you hear little footsteps throughout this entire podcast, I have a crap ton of cats. <laughs> so, my hair has just been walking around the whole time. <laughs> Alright, well, catch us next time on The Future is Bright. Thanks. Right, Question mark. <laughs> <laughs>